Hello, hello. Welcome to Thoughtful Edge. And uh, today uh, we'll be having a conversation about bridging the gap and how to do collaboration and lessons from building a billion dollar company with Ravi Parikh. Welcome, Ravi. Thank you for having me. Sure. Thank you for coming. So Ravi uh, has a computer science degree and uh, he has an engineering background. And uh, now he's an enthusiastic entrepreneur uh, and uh, one of the founder of the big attack plat platform, which provides insights. Uh, and the name of the platform is Heap. And uh, we are going to talk about his experience there and maybe about his current venture as well. He's the founder of uh, Airplane and um, might be having good insights for, for us uh, to tell about his uh, experience and achievements there. So uh, at HIP, he was able to grow up uh, the company and uh, team up to 200 people, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, achieve the evaluation of uh, almost 1 billion. So can you share some key lessons you've learned while doing that and while scaling the company and uh, while uh, doing all that great stuff at, at HIP? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Yeah, so um, as you kind of mentioned, I co-founded Heap in 2013, along with a friend of mine named Mateen, uh, and then helped grow the company to about 200 people over the next seven years. Um, I left the company in 2020, um, but the company's still around. It's now about 400 people. So it's roughly doubled since I left. Um, and yeah, it's worth close to a billion dollars, not quite a billion, it's worth 960 million, but kind of in the same ballpark. Um, there's a lot of lessons learned along the way. Obviously, spending seven years anywhere, you're going to learn a lot. Um, I, I would say that Some of the key lessons that really were, were some of my biggest takeaways were, I think number one was on the product side, um, all of the best decisions we ended up making on the product side were uh, due to having a deep understanding of our users. And all of the worst decisions we ended up making were when we started trying to be too strategic and trying to be too... Um, uh, Like overthinking, overthinking. Yeah, overthinking things and, and, and feeling like we were smarter than our users, like we knew better than they did what they needed. So I think like ultimately, like not your users can't tell you what to build, but your users can tell you what their problems are. And I think really understanding those problems and believing those problems and having a deep understanding of them um, is sort of step one to building any great product, no matter what it is. Um, and so that was like really the core driver of all the best things that we ever did at the company. I'd say that's like lesson number one. I think lesson number two is just never be in a rush to hire. I think like, you know, ultimately once a company hits a certain level of scale, it's success or failure is just based on the people in the company. You as a founder cannot do everything past maybe the first couple of years. And so ultimately if you hire great people and you onboard them well and, and set a good culture, then they're going to be effective. And if you don't, they're not. And I think some of the worst decisions we made were when we felt a lot of pressure to really fill a role really fast and then ended up compromising on some of our values or some of the things that we really cared about because we thought, oh, well, you know, we really need to fill this role today. Um, I think the thing I've learned is, you know, as, as painful as it can be to have a key role open for a long time, it's much more painful to have the wrong person in that role. So I'd say those are the two biggest takeaways that I've tried to bring with me to my next role. Um, there's obviously lots of other small lessons along the way, but those are two big things that come to mind. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah. The wrong hiring decisions that might definitely hurt than uh, anything else, because like ultimately it is the people who will uh, uh, do the job, who will like make the company successful. And what do we see now? The market is just uh, like 
reconvey the message once again, like yeah. all the big companies, they were hiring like crazy for the uh, several years. And then they realized, oh, there is no demand anymore for that kind of, uh, for that amount of people. So we are going to let them go. And I'm, uh, and I'm just even more curious now, like you said that uh, you started that uh, company with uh, one of your friends at that time. And uh, why did you, why did you decide to go to the ad tech? Since yeah. I'm in that, I'm in that tech, like I like the industry. I like everything what is going on here. And what, what, what was your preference? Yeah. I mean, the reason we started the company, it was really, so Mateen, my co-founder was, was the one who actually came up with the idea and ultimately ended up um, starting Keep first before actually bringing me on as sort of a late co-founder, a couple months into him starting to build it out. Um, but he uh, came up with the idea. He basically, um, it was from his own personal pain point. So he used to be a product manager at Facebook and um, Heap was, the idea behind Heap is to sort of like automatically collect client side data from like um, websites, mobile apps, that kind of stuff. So you don't have to sort of spend a lot of time instrumenting um, tracking code manually. And so he came up with that idea because he had sort of experienced that pain point over and over and over again at his previous company at, at Facebook. And so it was a very natural idea for him. And that's kind of where we sort of started building Heap from. And he pitched me on the idea when he had just started building it. And and sort of the idea made a lot of sense to me. I've sort of implemented analytics tools in the past and had a lot of pain around that. So it just made a lot of sense um, once he kind of like gave me the, the idea and we started working on it together. So, yeah. 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 The, I also found the uh, industry quite fascinating with all the data and like user behavior. So yeah. It's in, interesting to learn and like do something useful for the people as well. Uh, because like I found a great value in the ad tech and advertisement and marketing. Like, I don't know. Whenever I go to some website or to the social media and they target me with some useful stuff. Yeah. <laughs> why not? <laughs> Okay, and um, as we are both coming from like technical background, uh, computer science degrees and everything, sometimes it's a struggle for us to balance our like technical knowledge, uh, deep understanding of how computer works, and uh, then when we move onto some business roles, we're struggling to find the balance. Yeah, between uh, leading the go-to-market team uh, and uh, like still having this temptation to be as deep as possible in all those small technical details and stuff, and all the technologies that are coming out at framework. So, what what was uh, your learning uh, on that area there? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Yeah, so both both me and my co-founder, um, we were both. Um, you know, we're both engineers by background. So neither of us had a go-to-market background really. And scaling any SaaS company requires kind of balancing both. It's not, uh, most SaaS companies don't sell themselves. You have to actually build a go-to-market team to, to sort of take the product to market. Uh, and it's sort of an equally important part of building the company. And so as the company grew, first year or two years, were really just me and my co-founder writing code and talking to customers. We weren't really right. doing much else. But once we started getting you know, off the ground and started generating revenue and stuff like that, it became pretty important pretty quickly to build out a sales team, to build out a marketing team, build out customer success, all that stuff. And so I took on that challenge. My co-founder um, leaned more towards managing product and engineering. At, at the end of the day, the company was his idea. It was his sort of product brainchild. So he kind of um, led that side and I kind of led the go-to-market side. And, and really what ended up happening um, was, I, I think one thing we both did well was we were both pretty... 
um, self-aware about what we were good at and what we were not so good at. And so I knew I was not a go-to-market expert. I knew I didn't know anything about sales or marketing or customer success or any of that stuff. Uh, I mean, even some of the termino- like really basic terminology was just new to me. Uh, and so we were just very, I think, humble about asking for help. And so we were very lucky. We went through Y Combinator um, with our company and YC is full of other B2B companies that have are at various other stages. And so we would like talk to our friends who worked at these other companies and just get their sense of like, hey, how did you get your first few customers? How did you get off the ground? How did you hire your first salespeople? What does that profile look like? You know, what, what should we do? And so you can't outsource all your decision making. Ultimately, you have to make some first principle decisions yourself. But I think a lot of technical founders make the mistake of trying to solve too much from first principles. Like they, they think, you know, I built a great product from first principles. People really like it. So I must be able to engineer a whole go-to-market machine. And the thing is that there is a lot of cultural knowledge in Silicon Valley about how to do it. We were actually very shameless about just let's ask five other companies how to do it. You know, four of them said do X. One of them said do Y. Eh, probably X is the correct decision. So we would do that for a lot of things. And that was quite helpful to us in terms of getting those first few sales hires correct, getting like sort of customer success process correct, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so we leaned on that a lot. And then we just hired really good people and like gave them a lot of ownership and a lot of trust. And so, you know, if I hired someone who's really good at sales and has a good background, I'm not going to tell them, hey, here's how you should sell Heap. I'll tell them, hey, here's what's worked for me, but you should integrate that knowledge into your own best practice of how you know how to sell. And so I think by doing that, we ended up having really good success. And so Nothing super complicated, really just deferring to people who are better at these things than me and my co-founder were and just like setting the high level direction correctly. And that worked pretty well for a while. Um, so yeah, I think that was more or less the, the way we approached that challenge. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. The way you trust people and the way they trust you and uh, you're more capable of building those more reliable relationship. And especially if you trust their expertise, if uh, you know that they can do themselves you just give them general direction and it usually works out well for sure by the way what was the aha moment when you realized that oh we cannot do that everything ourselves we need to seek for any kind of assistance what was that moment that led you to that decision yeah i mean honestly it wasn't any one moment it was more just like as the company grew gradually it became kind of obvious that there was a lot of parts about building this company that we weren't quite aware of how to do effectively. And like, yeah, we could sort of speculate about how we might do it. But, um, you know, the the nice thing about having gone through Y Combinator and, and living in San Francisco at the time and being surrounded by other SaaS companies is, you know, just our friends were trying to deal with the same challenges. And we would just sort of hear these stories from them, people who are a little bit further along, that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I think that that sort of being surrounded by that culture of people who have a similar set of challenges that you do is not to be underestimated. I think that like knowledge kind of seeps in and, and helps you kind of craft the way you're building your company better. Yeah. Knowledge seeps in, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's the, the environment. It's definitely uh, like environment in the Bay Area, especially. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely make, makes you uh, like things differently as well. Like in all For directions. Sure. And um, moving on and like thinking more about like growing and uh, uh, growing the team and growing the company and uh, the collaboration is a uh, essence here. And uh, what strategies did, did you implement to foster that across the company as Hip grew and uh, maybe used any specific tools or techniques that you found effective? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say like, honestly, it's something that we did Okay, I think we could definitely have done a lot better job of it in retrospect. Um, 
Um, ultimately, I think the thing that I found over time as being one of the best ways to foster collaboration was just spending time with each other. And that sounds kind of obvious, but the thing that I've noticed as you grow is, you know, let's say, you know, let's say you're a 10 person company, you naturally spend a lot of time with each other. It's hard not to. Um, but if you are a 50 person, 80 person, 100 person company, everybody's calendar is totally full. Like if you look at any executive, any VP of sales, VP of marketing, you know, CTO, everybody's calendar is totally full with meetings, internal meetings, external meetings, recruiting, sales, whatever it might be. Um, and as a result, it's very easy to neglect the one-on-one -on -one time spent with each other. And so one thing that I actually felt was really effective um, at, at Heap, around when I was leaving, we hired a COO um, to take over my role. He actually eventually became the CEO of the company. My co-founder left as well. Um, and one of the first things he did was when he came on board, he said, look, the executive team is full of really talented people, but it's kind of dysfunctional because everyone is off on their own island. You know, product is over here, marketing is over here, sales is over here. And so one of the first things he did was he had everybody who was leading each of these teams um, just to a one, like a standup every single day for half an hour. And this felt really expensive at the time. We're like, hey, you're taking all the highly paid execs in the company and you're taking 30 minutes out of their day every single day in the morning. That's time that could have gone towards building the business, all this kind of stuff. So people kind of were annoyed by it. But the thing we noticed is even after just a few weeks of doing that, the level of communication and empathy that people had with each other just grew a lot. And the sort of level of misalignment between teams went way down. And so just forcing that time, that frequency of time being spent together across departments was really effective once we got to a certain level of scale. Um, and so that's, I think, something you, it's easy to not do. It's the easiest thing to cut from your schedule is one-on-ones with people, um, but you have to do them. You have to respect that time. It's, it's stuff that is really invaluable, especially for cross-departmental collaboration. So I think that's, I haven't found a, a more of a shortcut solution than that. Uh, to sort of foster collaboration, right? But how other way you will you will be close to people? How you will build this bond to them? And uh, yeah, this is invaluable advice. Like totally agree with you. And that's and uh, as as you exactly said, like it's easy to not to do that. It's easy yeah. to forget or neglect or whatever. People will care about their stuff themselves. Like I don't need to be there. It's not true. Yeah. So. Uh, and as uh, Heap moved up markets uh, with its product offering, what were the main challenges you, you, you encountered and how you overcame them? Yeah, it's a good question. So yeah, Heap uh, started out as very much selling to startups. We were a self-serve product. You could pay for $50 a month on a credit card. Um, that was kind of the earliest price point. Uh, and then we slowly moved to those prices over time and eventually became purely an enterprise uh, or most of our revenue came from enterprise. There still is a free tier and a self-serve tier for Heap, but the majority of the revenue comes from people paying six figures or seven figures for the product. So uh, I would say a lot of challenges on the way moving up market, um, tons and tons of stuff that it took for us to raise our deal size from a few thousand dollars to a few hundred thousand dollars over, the, over many years. I, I would say like some of the biggest challenges we faced, I think number one, uh, we had a lot of competition and there was always pricing pressure on every single deal. And so it would be from direct competitors. And also we're an analytics product. We would compete with Google Analytics, which is free. Um, right. And so Google Analytics even has an enterprise offering, but it's very, very cheap. And so um, as a result, it was very hard to sort of compete with people who are like, well, we already use Google Analytics and we pay nothing for it. So we're going to create a new budget for your thing. Um, that was always a big challenge. 
Um, ultimately, we had to just get really, really crisp about the ROI that our, our product generated. And so we did a lot of case studies with customers. We had very precise kind of like um, viewpoint on how our automation of tracking code would sort of save engineering time directly, allow you to sort of accelerate your product roadmap, allow you to do more testing and iteration. So we had really crisp stories around that. And we've trained our sales team really well to be able to tell those stories and to be able to like contextualize that ROI in the customer's view. And so when it ultimately came down to it and we asked for $250,000, it should be hopefully obvious that we're going to save the company 10 or 50x that amount uh, in terms of revenue uplift or cost savings um, at, at the sort of size of companies we were talking to. And so I think if your ROI case is very clear, if you're driving differentiated real value, it's really hard to prove those things for a software product. But if you can, and you can back that up with real data points and real case studies of customers who have done it, there's not really any substitute for that. Very, very few products in software have obvious ROI. Um, most products, it's uh, you have to kind of prove it indirectly. And so you have to build up those case studies over time. There's no substitute for having real life customers who will attest to the savings that your product has driven for their companies or the revenue uplift that they've driven through it. So that's ultimately what you got to do. There's no real substitute for it. Uh, and then you can train your team really well to be able to articulate those stories. Mm. So you actually, you're always emphasizing on ROI that you're bringing and uh, then it was the differentiator for you, right? Yeah, for sure. It was tying that ROI back to the product differentiation. So, you know, it's one thing to be like, oh, analytics is helpful, but it's, we have to prove that Heap specifically is going to help you in ways that are unique. You know, if we're competing head to head against uh, Pendo or Amplitude or Google Analytics and, and they're coming in at half the price, um, but we can say, well, this, this set of unique offerings that we have is going to provide outsized value that even paying double for Heap is, should still be seen as a bargain. That's really what we tried to prove to people. Mm. Did you have a moment, by the way, that you realized that your competitors uh, uh, started to noticing you and like paying attention to what, what you do and maybe trying to replicate some of the stuff? Yeah, we definitely had that. So when Heap started, it was 2013. Obviously, we were very small on day one. Um, our main competitor was a company uh, called Mixpanel, um, which is still around. I think they're doing pretty well. But um, they were really big. They were five years older than Heap, and they'd been, they'd been around for a while already. They were kind of the um, new analytics tool that was doing really well. Um, uh, and so we kind of, every single customer that we talked to was either using Mixpanel already or comparing us to them or, or things like that. Uh, and Mixpanel didn't really care about us, of course, because we were a new startup. But, at, you know, three, four years in, when we had started, you know, maybe stealing a little bit of market share from them and, and growing a little bit, they'd started noticing us more. They actually came out with a competitive feature. So the Heap's main innovation was, you know, Mixpanel is a powerful product, but it took a lot of work to implement. You have to basically write a bunch of code to sort of implement Mixpanel. Whereas the way mm -hmm. Heap works is you install Heap once, it takes you five minutes to install it, and it'll automatically track all that stuff that Mixpanel took manual work to do. So it's basically more of a low-code, no-code approach to analytics compared to our, our competitors. And so Mixpanel noticed that, and I think around 2016 or 17, I think, they rolled out a feature they called AutoTrack, which was their um, competitive offering to us. Mm. Um, and they even sent out, like their CEO sent out a tweet that day saying like, oh, we're coming for Heap or something like that. Um, ultimately, it ended up being that day when they rolled out that feature was our number one day in terms of signups. Because when Mixpanel announced that, Mixpanel was still so much bigger than us. 
there was a lot of this attention. Like, why did they build this feature? Oh, it's to compete with this product called Heap. Oh, what's Heap? Let me go check that out. So we actually got a lot of attention from that. And I Whoa. think the really interesting thing is, you know, Heap was built with this feature in mind from day one. And it was a fundamental differentiator. It was core to how the entire product functioned. Whereas Mixmail had kind of tacked it on after the fact. And as a result, it never really worked. From what we heard from Mixpanel customers, there were some clever ideas in there. I'm sure they had done a good job building it, but it wasn't woven into the product at the same deep level that we had done so. And so it never really got real adoption among their customers. Um, they weren't, they didn't really understand how to make it successful. Uh, and ultimately they shut down the feature like two years later. So um, it never ended up being a threat. It was mostly helpful to us. It was validation that what we were doing was, was uh the right approach to analytics. And it ultimately ended up being more of a positive than a negative to us. So yeah, people definitely notice. I think that's really common for startups. You come up with a cool new innovative thing. By the time you're big enough that people take notice of you, you're already really far along and you've really not just built that differentiator, you've built 20 other things on top of that differentiator. It's hard for your competitors to really internalize that. So right, yeah. Right. And they also made the mistake of mentioning you as like yeah. something they try to go after. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, that's funny. And um, in our like fast-paced world, everything is changing uh, with that tremendous speed that we cannot just keep up with everything. And um, now you work at a different company, like you're building Airplane, uh, yeah. which is apparently another successful startup, which, uh, which is taking up. And uh, like those experiences, they are almost 10 years apart. So when you're working at HIP, it was like 2013, 14, 15. And uh, now we are in uh, like 2020s. And uh, do you see any difference between those kind of eras uh, when you build a company that time and what is happening right now? Like, is there any differences, approaches, or like how you can, how you can compare those times? Yeah, there it's it's really different. I think some things are the same, some things are very different. I think the things that are the same, having a deep understanding of your customers, there's no substitute for that. Having to uh, really understand the customer problem you're solving, there's no substitute for that. But I think a lot has changed. I think when we started Heap in 2013, it was not SaaS was not a super um, uh, lucrative industry in 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 Silicon Valley. People were still more interested in funding you know, mobile apps and marketplaces and a lot of consumer stuff rather than B2B. And so when we started Heap, there were only three public companies that were SaaS companies that were trading above $10 billion in market cap. And they were Salesforce, ServiceNow, and Workday. Um, and even those Workday and ServiceNow were not that big. They were just a little bit bigger than $10 billion. Salesforce was the only really big one there. And so people saw B2B as a way to, you know, build, you know, okay-sized companies, but not really consistently get to huge outcomes that would return your whole VC fund. So very few VCs were like B2B focused in the way that they are today. Um, and cloud adoption was still, it was growing. Clearly it was a trend everyone was aware of, but it wasn't yet sort of obvious that that was where all of computing would move to. And so there were still huge on-prem vendors like Cloudera and stuff like that, that were quite successful. And so that was kind of the environment in which Heap started. And as a result, um, it was, it was, it made fundraising a lot harder, but it also made company building a lot easier because um, you didn't have 50 competitors springing up overnight um, every time you had any interesting ideas. Uh, and so today, you know, 10 years later, we're in an era where there have been so many multi-billion dollar SaaS companies, $10 billion, $50 billion SaaS companies haven't been created over the last 10 years. It's become 
basically the dominant sort of vertical in Silicon Valley. It's probably the number one place where VCs have made money over the last 10 years. I mean, I don't know the exact stats, but that's what it feels like, at least from my perspective. And so um, any decent SaaS idea can get funded these days. And any decent SaaS idea is going to have at least 10 other people who have similar insights. And so with Airplane, you know, we had a pretty interesting, innovative idea, but there are like four or five other companies I know of that have had very similar insights. And I don't think they copied us. I mean, I mean, maybe maybe a couple of them did, but I think a lot of them probably came to those same insights independently of us because they had experienced the same pain points we had. And so you just have to be a lot more crisp about not about building a differentiated, really valuable product and about having a differentiation value compound very quickly. And so the SaaS companies that do well today, I think it seems like the ones that like ship very fast, you know, not that it's ever bad to, you know, it was always the case that, Building product quickly and shipping quickly is important, but it's more important than ever to be able to take a small edge and compound it very quickly. And so um, you look at a company like Rippling, for example, Rippling's been very successful over the last few years. And part of their success has been they've built a massive platform very, very quickly. They've um, built uh, you know something that does HR and IT and, and uh, payroll and benefits and, and all like basically every aspect of back office for a company um, with... Uh, uh, just sort of one one offering rather than having to buy five or six different vendors. And so that to me is like uh, Deal is another example of company, D-E-L.com. Um, they're also sort of like international payroll. They started out with just sort of hiring contractors internationally, but they quickly added full-time. They added the ability to do benefits, all this kind of stuff. They added lots of country offerings very quickly. And so I think that speed is much more of a key value now and a key differentiator mm. now than it was 10 years ago because you just have so many more competitors that you're trying to stay ahead of. So mm. I think it's one thing that's changed. Um, yeah. And um, you mentioned that speed, which is like apparently crucial uh, nowadays. And uh, uh, how the speed is achieved? Like what are the, what people started to do differently uh, compared to what we had 10 years ago compared to now? Like, Where this speed is coming from? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, there's not any easy answer. I think you just have to be really good at building product very, very quickly. I think I think in some cases, speed comes from having a clear understanding of, of customer pain point. I mean, I keep coming back to that, but it's like, mm. uh, I, I think about products. There are certain products that I use. I don't want to call out specific products, but there are certain products that I use day to day and have used for 10 years, and they don't seem like they've changed at all. You know, they seem like the same core right. offering they had six, ten, yeah. eight years ago. And I don't think it's because the people there aren't doing anything. I'm sure they're actually shipping features left and right, but I'm, everything they build isn't for me. And so as a result, I don't end up seeing any of that new innovation. Whereas I think if you have a clear understanding of your user, then like every new thing you build should ideally be something your user will see and think, wow, that's actually makes me, makes this product even more valuable for me. And so if you have a crisp understanding of who your users are and every two weeks you're releasing yet another thing that they like, then they will perceive that as you know, being very sort of speedy and very efficient. I think about um, you know, a product that I've used for a few years that I really like is called Superhuman. It's like an email client um, that is like fairly popular, I think, these days. And yeah, one thing I've noticed yeah. is that of, of all the products I use day to day, it's one of the ones that I've noticed the most change in over time. They've you know, they're very good at sort of telling you that new features have shipped, but also when those new features ship, it's very clear to you where you think like, wow, this is actually something I want to use. Even if I wasn't thinking I needed it, um, it's now that it's there, I'm going to start using it. And so that's like, a, I think creating that feeling your users is not easy. Um, 
Uh, Linear is another example. It's a task tracking software we, we use to sort of do our project management and all that kind of stuff as a company. They're sort of a competitor to Asana and Jira. And compared to sort of other task tracking features of uh, tools I've used in the past, you know, every one to two months, they'll come out with something where I'll think, wow, it's actually going to make us more efficient as a business. And so I think that like, you know, I don't think their engineers write code any faster than anyone else, I, but I think they, their, their founders and their product people and their engineers have such a crisp understanding of what the value they're trying to drive mm. is that like everything they do build feels high value. And that, that sort of ha- gives you this feeling of like speed and compounding effect. So the technology itself maybe not played that huge role in like uh, speeding this up, but you think it's just the mindset that like the product team needs to embrace, right? I think so. And look, this is all easier said than done. It's really, every company wants to say they understand their users really well and that they build the right things. Every company thinks that, you know, it's it's not simple right. by any means, yeah. but yet you see a difference. You see a difference between when I use linear versus when I use Asana, not to pick on them in particular, I've used both products for long periods of time. And there's only one of those two products where I felt like everything they built was like really moving that product forward. Um, and it wasn't due to a lack of effort necessarily on one side or the other. It was more, um, there's a crispness of understanding there that that's just really hard to replicate. And so I think that's much more crucial in 2023 today than it was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I think Um, you still needed that, but I think you could get away with saying you had a disruptive innovation from day one and you could sort of just rely on that differentiation lasting for a lot longer period of time. Mm. Um, mm. Today, you can't rely on that as much. You need to be as fast as possible. Yeah. And all that competitive markets. Okay. And uh, uh, as we are moving on to the future and uh, like with all that AI and with all that crazy new technologies that are popping up every day. Uh, what the future of SaaS and uh, tech industry in general, the future of airplane as well? Like, how do you envision that? Yeah. So, yeah, honestly, you know, right now is maybe one of the hardest times in the last decade to predict what's going to happen next because of this sort of AI wave. I think, you know, there are a lot of split opinions on what's going to happen Um, I, I think that right now, a lot of the AI stuff is um, a little bit overhyped. Uh, I think it's really real and genuinely valuable, but um, I think people are trying to use a lot of these large language models in ways that they're not really meant for um, right now. I think what they're really good at, they're, they're very good at summarization. They're very good at sort of generating content. They're very good at generating ideas. They're not very good at things where you need high levels of precision and accuracy. Um, and so if you end up having having to use them in ways where they're like, autonomously generating some content that's going to be used somehow um, without sort of a human review step, it's not going to work. Whereas people are trying to use it that way. Um, however, that doesn't mean that like the next version won't be good enough to do that. And so I think this is the thing that makes this stuff really hard to predict, um, which is that like you can see what they're capable of today. You can see what they're good at and what they're not good at today. You can't quite tell what that means a year from now or two years from now or three years from now, because the rate at which GPT-4 versus three versus two, that rate of progress has been so um, fast. And so what my personal opinion, and this is purely an opinion from someone who's not an expert, is I think like you will see these models become faster, more accurate, um, require less and less oversight. And I think what will end up happening is let's call it five to 10 years from now, there'll be in a situation where the role of any sort of knowledge worker, whether you're a software engineer or a product manager or a, a content person or, or whatever, is going to be massively different where Um, you're not, you're sort of relying on a lot of these tools to do uh, a lot of the generation and you're kind of like applying that human edge to sort of curate things and edit things and stuff like that. 
So I think that's the, the direction things are trending. And I think that will mean like platforms like Airplane uh, work really well. The way Airplane works, we basically build a, uh, a platform for creating internal tools. And we give you a set of building blocks to sort of build software on top of. Right now, people write code into Airplane. Like they write code directly and then Airplane sort of takes advantage of that code to sort of assemble things um, for them. That code can get sort of like written eventually by large language models and, and AI and things like that in a more efficient way, but you still need the building blocks at the, at the root of it. So I think you'll see developer tools and stuff like that um, that do a really good job of encapsulating key concepts with like the right primitives being successful. Um, whereas things that are more on the UI layer where you're saying like, hey, the way we're going to add innovation to people is by building like a innovative new drag and drop system for building apps or something like that. I think that'll be less valuable in the future because the way people interface with software is going to change so much. So I, I think like that infrastructure layer will be more and more valuable and more and more durable. I think that more like user layer will be like less durable and will change more. But again, like I say all this from a position of like very little knowledge because I think we're at this inflection point where it's really hard to predict the future. Even the companies that make these AI models have no idea how they're going to evolve. You know, even OpenAI themselves no idea what GPT-5 will be able to do or not able to do and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's a, an interesting time for sure. Yeah, interesting. But however, in your opinion, uh, do you think AI will take over of all of our jobs in the future? <laughs> so, I mean, on a long enough time scale, I don't see why not. Um, I think, you know, I don't know if that'll happen in five years or 10 years or 20 years or 50 years. But ultimately, I, I don't think there's anything fundamentally impossible about the ability for a computer to do anything we do. At the end of the day, my job, the jobs of all the people who work at Airplane at all the companies I've worked at are more or less like you're um, exercising your decision-making abilities, right? You're saying, you know, what, uh, how should I build this feature? What should it do? Who is it for? Um, you're synthesizing information and you're using that synthesized information to sort of create something. And uh, ultimately that is what these um, AI models seem to be okay at. They're not great at it yet, but you can see the trend of how they will eventually get better and better and better at these things, how they'll be able to integrate more and more and more context, how they'll be uh, faster at thinking about these things, how they'll be able to think about these things at a higher level. I don't see any reason why that trend would stop. Um, so yeah, at some point, I think that changes the relationship of how um, people build companies and software and do their jobs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Probably the only thing is left for us is just learn it as uh, quickly as possible and start yeah. improving our efficiencies as well using all those tools. I for use sure. ChatGPT often. Like, yeah, it creates for idea generation. For example, when I know that I need to write an article, for example, or write something, and there is a blank page in front of you, and like, ah, what should I start? I, even though I have some ideas, but it's it's. Sometimes it's hard to even just to start typing, start typing the first like sentence, the first paragraph, whatever. For sure. Uh, okay, and uh, as we are uh, almost at time and uh, wrapping up, I have the last question for you. Based on your experience with uh, both HIP and Airplane, what advice would you give to aspiring tech entrepreneurs looking to build successful SaaS companies? Yeah. Um... Number one piece of advice that I'd keep coming back to is really understand the problem you're trying to solve. I, I've said that a few times in a few different ways. I think like, you know, most SaaS companies are built by technologists or built by engineers, people who have really strong technical skills. Um, Heap and Airplane are no different. Me and my co-founder in both cases, both at Heap and at Airplane, we're both engineers by background. We like building cool things. The danger, if you love building cool things, is that you build something that's cool, but has no actual application. 
I think today that's honestly more dangerous today than it's ever been because today you have AI models that are so much fun to play with. They're so cool to build on top of, you know, every day you go on a Twitter or Reddit or whatever, and you see cool new demos of cool new products that are just like, look really magical. Um, and ultimately you can do, you can build all the demos you want to, but if there's no actual key business problem that you're solving, then all you're doing is playing with technology. You're not actually building a business. And so I think ultimately tie it back to what's the problem you're trying to solve. Both Heap and Airplane came from personal pain points. Heap was started by my co-founder had a personal pain point that he wanted to solve. Airplane, both me and my co-founder here started the company because of things we experienced at our previous companies. And so we knew there was at least one person, you know, ourselves who needed this product. Um, many companies don't even start with that. Many companies start with zero mm. people who actually need the product. Uh, mm. And then they're sort of searching for a problem to go solve. So I'd say start with a real problem, ideally a personal problem, but even if it's not a personal problem, have some have a real person in mind when you're building that company. Um, you know, if it turns out that AI or whatever cool new technology is key to solving that problem, then use it. That's great. But if it's not, then, you know, maybe choose a better problem. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. So uh, we had a great conversation with Ravi Parikh today. Thank you for coming and uh, wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks.